The RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com. All right, you're very welcome along to an RTE Rugby Podcast special. We had our usual podcast yesterday with uh, myself and Bernard Jackman, but we're going to throw out another one this week because I'm delighted to be joined by uh, New Zealand journalist and rugby author, Jamie, uh, Jamie Wall. Jamie, thanks a million for joining us. Author of, I mean, is it three or four books on the All Blacks? Can you can you clear that one up for me? Uh, it's actually five. Uh, new five now, all thanks. right. Yeah, yeah, thanks for the plug. Thanks for the plug and thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be uh, joining you today to talk about this upcoming tour. So what's the what's the what's the latest one? What's the most recent one that's come out? It was the uh, last one I remember seeing from you was the, the, the 100-year war. Is that the most recent one? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the Hundred Year War. Um, that was about the uh, rivalry between the All Blacks and the Springboks, which uh, hit a hundred years old last year. And they also played the hundredth Test match, um, which was actually really boring, um, and ended up being in Townsville of all places in Australia. So, so there you go. But uh, there's obviously um, you don't need to be a massive history buff to know that there's a a lot of stuff that happened off the field as well as on. Uh, when it comes to South African rugby and especially when it comes to New Zealand playing South Africa as well. So uh, if you're interested in a bit of um, social history as well as footy, um, I'd recommend uh, having a read of that. Very good. What's 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 next up for you? Uh, Book-wise, I'm just taking a little bit of a break. Um, uh, hopefully um, get back into it next year and do another uh, coverage of the season leading up to the World Cup. Um, next year, like I did with my other book, Heroics and Heartbreak, which of course was the story of the All Blacks 2019 World Cup campaign. Yeah, this uh, this World Cup pay campaign has been quite interesting now because it was something I was. We did our usual podcast yesterday. I was chatting to to Bernard Jackman, and we were obviously previewing the tour. And it's it's a funny situation because we were saying can't really remember the last time we've been coming into any kind of a game against New Zealand or any real real campaign for New Zealand where the narrative is that their backs are to the wall, they're under an enormous amount of pressure and to be totally honest, we don't really know what to expect because we're actually just not used to seeing what the All Blacks are like when they're really under the pump and really under pressure because generally speaking, they're coming into campaigns feeling pretty good about themselves, building along nicely and generally just expecting to win but it, it hasn't really been like that for the last year or so. No, not at all. I mean, I have to say that, you know, it's been a couple of years of massive disruption um, for the All Blacks. Uh, obviously, geographically, New Zealand is, is at a bit of a disadvantage uh, when it comes to uh, arranging sporting events, uh, given that no one was allowed in now the country. And when they were, the furthest we could go was Australia. So that's why we ended up playing the Wallabies. I think it was seven times in the last two seasons um, and then obviously that tour up north uh, last year was the first time they'd got up there um, since well since 2018 actually to for a European tour so it's a pretty long time between drinks and of course that tour uh, was a real odyssey they, they left to go to Australia thinking that they, they were going to be able to come back to play the rugby championship um, turns out they couldn't so they stayed there um, then flew straight on to Europe and by the time the tour had finished they'd been away for the better part of five months uh which is you know that's how long they'd go away for back in the back in the old days you know the old uh lions tours and, and stuff in the amateur era so so uh, you know i'll cut them a little bit of slack on that but uh as you well know 
Um, the end of that tour was was not great um, for the All Blacks. Um, you know, it's one thing for the All Blacks to lose. It's another thing for the All Blacks to be beaten convincingly. But it's another thing entirely for that to happen twice in a row. And like I, you need to go back a long, long way back in history uh, to find instances of that happening. I think the last time that would have happened would have been about 2009 uh, against a, a very good Springbok team um, that, that gave us a pretty, pretty decent go over a, a couple of times in South Africa. Uh, but of course, that being South Africa in South Africa, it has that kind of built-in excuse. Well, we, 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 we you know, that's a, that's a, that's a massive challenge. Um, but to go up to to Europe uh, and then realize as the as we we're going into those last two tests, to think like, wow, actually, I could totally see the All Blacks losing both of these games, um, and then to to go down in Dublin. And then to go down in Paris and, and, you know, yeah, like I said, convincing losses to end the year, it's just left, left us with a whole long summer and then a whole long super rugby competition of asking ourselves, well, where exactly are we at? You know, where, what's going on with the All Blacks? Um, they're clearly not at the same level as, as, as Ireland and France uh, were and, and asking yourself the same, asking ourselves the same question of some other Northern Hemisphere teams as well, and that for us is the main difficulty of getting it through our heads that we're not the world leaders uh, in rugby innovation at the moment. It's just coming out of the north. Um, that that hiatus, I guess you could say, we had of uh, due to the pandemic has meant that we are we've sort of fallen behind a little bit. And, and that hurts as a New Zealander because you know that's the one we might not win every single game, but we can still sort of go home and think, well, we you know we're the ones who are everyone's trying to follow us. You know, if they've if we've, if we've been beaten, it's because you've you've essentially copied or innovated on what something we've already done. That's not the case anymore. So there's a huge amount of co- pressure on the coaching staff uh, coming in coming into the series, and and I think that you've got three tests against Ireland, which is going to be really really fascinating and then the next two games they play after that are two tests against the Springboks in South Africa so you're looking at the most difficult start to an all-black season in a long long time as well and you know asking around you know what what's the all-black's record going to be at the at the end of those first five tests I haven't found anyone who said they, they're going to be five and oh I haven't found anyone well I mean five and oh Three tests against Ireland, two away against South Africa. Five and always would be a pretty sweet position to be in. But obviously, you mentioned Ian Foster and pressure around him there. Like the perception up here would be that there's a there's a degree of pressure on him. How how real is it? How real is that perception that we would have? Oh, massive, massive. Like there, there's a lot of pressure on him. Like is um, it, is this is it feasible that you know? if results don't, don't go to plan, is it feasible that the plug gets pulled and he doesn't make it to the World Cup? Yeah, yeah, it's entirely it's entirely possible. I mean, uh, you got to remember, though, that no all-black coach has actually ever been sacked. You know, um, that just simply doesn't happen. Um, if I, I feel like if it was going to happen to Foster, it would have happened at the end of last year. However, like I said, the challenges that this team's faced, I think he probably had given himself a bit, enough, a bit, enough of rope there to, uh, to kind of survive that um, that inquisition that came afterwards um, by fans who, are, like I said, are quite shocked that like 
not only are we getting beaten, we're getting made to look like a real second-rate team um, there. So, yeah, huge pressure on on Foster and not just him, but his staff as well, because the 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 one thing recurring theme that we've heard over the last two years is about the need for physicality, the need to dominate uh, the Ford packs, the need to you know be the bullies again. And it just hasn't happened. It's it's it, it, the closest it's got has been against the Wallabies, which is a team that we sort of expect to bully. Um, and that's coming mostly out of uh, the mouth of um, assistant coach John Plumtree, who you, I'm sure you guys are familiar with. Yeah. And he he's kind of just toted this line a lot over the last couple of years. Like, yeah, we need to be more physical. And I'm I'm at the point where I'm like, mate, well, this is your job. You know, you need to make this happen. We saw a Super Rugby final the other night. I'm not sure how, how many people up you guys were. Yeah, it would have been like it'd be shown on Sky Sports up here. Yeah. The, the, the yes. rugby so, fans would have been tuning in, certainly, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So we saw we saw a very test match like game between the Crusaders and the Blues in Park. And the way the Crusaders went about winning that was by playing a very test match style. And they relied very heavily on their big name players um, standing up and having big games. And one of them was uh, Sam Whitelock who probably had his best game in about four years. Uh, and it was for the Crusaders. And while it was fantastic to see him play that well and be in that sort of form, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, how come you're not doing this for the All Blacks? Because he, to me, you know, he's a fantastic player. He's, he's going to retire with almost 200 tests under his belt. You know, he's going to be one of the great All Blacks of all time. That's undeniable. But for me, he was one of the big letdowns on that tour. We needed guys like him to step up and, and drag guys up with him. And, and for him to turn around and say to the say to a lot of other players, hey, look, I've been in this sort of situation before. Here's what we need to do, boys. And it, it just didn't happen. And, um, you know, there's a few other senior players in that category as well. So I think that was a real eye-opener um, that, you know, Scott Robertson could get a game like that out of Sam Whitelock. But we'll see if, Sam, uh, if Ian Foster... Uh, can do the same in the series because I think it's going to be very tight. How difficult is it for for Foster when you have over one shoulder, you know, of Joe Schmidt hovering and on the other is the man that everyone just seems to love, who you just mentioned as well, Scott Robertson. Like, he's in a tricky position where the the public seem to seem to like others a lot more than him. Yeah, yeah. And that, this is, again, like quite a unique situation like this hasn't happened for a long time not since the days of John Hart which is going back a long long time now that you've had quite as divisive a coach um you know there was obviously and why is he, why is, he divisive? is he divisive in terms of personality or is it simply just he's not getting the results well I don't think it's personality he's, he's a very likable guy I, I get along quite well with him he's a, he's a, he's a good dude uh and you know I don't think he has a, a sort of um, malicious sort of bone in his body, if you know what I mean. Um, he he knows how to get get the All Blacks firing. We saw that last year in, in some of their tests, like, for example, the test against Wales. Um, yes, that was a, an understrength Welsh team, but that was a really classic All Black performance. So, you know, he can concoct a game plan, um, but he, I hope he's just not being a flat-track bully, if you know what I mean. You know, like, he can only, he's good at running up scores against against um, understrength teams and games that we're, we're expecting to win. Um, you mentioned Joe Schmidt before. That's a very interesting situation now because this is 
this is maybe the first time this has happened where the NZ Rugby have brought in a guy to essentially act as his advisor. Uh, I wouldn't have thought an all-black coach needs someone advising him. Um, he should be in charge of all of this. Can you explain uh, for us actually exactly like what is the the role that that Joe Schmidt has? Like on on paper, it's it's written as selector, isn't it? So yeah. for a lot of it's, Irish it's, sport, like for a lot of Irish sport fans, like in in our Gaelic games, you would have selectors on teams, but they would be very much like backroom members of the of the coaching team rather than what what selector seems to be meaning down in New Zealand. Yeah, well, it, it's not entirely clear to us exactly how much influence he has, but I feel like it's somewhere between a selector and a director of rugby, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. That um, Schmidt is, is simply there to maybe just sort of chip in, not exactly run trainings or anything like that, uh, but to sit down afterwards and have a meeting and say, oh, okay, well, I think this, this could be happening, that could be happening. If I were in Foster, I'd find it pretty unnerving. Um, to be honest, it's it's a vote of it's kind of a vote of no confidence in his abilities, and also yeah, like you said before, um, you've got Scott Robertson sitting there doing everything he possibly can uh, to qualify him as an All Black coach without actually being made, and and New Zealand Rugby giving absolutely no inclination whatsoever to to make him the coach, um, and then also you've got this situation where Schmidt is sitting there seemingly just waiting for himself to be made coach. Um, to be part of this All Black setup because it seems like their succession plan is always to promote from within, mm-hmm. um, which is how Foster got the job in the first place and which is why people uh, don't, don't really trust him because the All Blacks lost the World Cup. You know, he's coming from a failed regime. But yeah. if they'd had, if you look back, um, right back to that Lions series in 2017, it's actually been a pretty patchy period of, of All Black rugby by, by All Black standards. Uh, and so to think to yourself, well, let's just keep it going the way that it is, it doesn't really make sense um, with a lot of people, myself included. I mean, I, I thought Robertson was going to get a job because they'd do a complete clean out and go, let's just start again with this whole new World Cup cycle. Uh, but obviously that's being left until next time that, um, you know, Foster had obviously been told at some point, like, this job's yours once Steve Hansen's done. So he was just waiting for the, for the World Cup to be done. Um, it shows just kind of how even how professional the All Blacks make themselves out to be and how forward-thinking that New Zealand rugby likes to make itself out to be, that it's still done by amateurish ways of, of handshakes at the bar and, and jobs for the boys. And, and that, to me, is a real indictment um, on the process. And, and, and for a lot of other people as well, like, you, you know, you can't have a guy like Robertson going out there winning. That's six titles in a row now. That's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And there's no chance of him becoming coach until um, next year. Uh, and then by then it might be too late. Yeah. What's the perception of the kind of rugby Joe Schmidt played when he was Ireland head coach? Like, what, what do people think of him down there? Because as successful as he was here with Ireland, and as loved as he is in terms of what, what he won, like he won, you know, several Six Nations titles uh, and a Grand Slam as well on top of it. But at the same time, there were a lot of people who who did not like the style of rugby. It was quite conservative. It was based on kind of squeezing out the opposition rather than what we would normally associate the All Blacks with, which is just imposing yourself on another team and not really being too worried about what they're doing, but just doing your own thing yourself. Which is interesting because that's how Ireland won that game in Chicago. Uh, you know, it was just by playing 
their own game and and not stopping until the till the final whistle blew, which was um, you know went against everything that New Zealand fans had always thought about Ireland, which was they'd be really good for the first twenty minutes, and as long as you could just sort of weather that, uh, they'd run out of puff and you could just cruise on off to a to a nice comfortable victory and bizarrely um, it actually, bizarrely it actually for about 50 60 minutes it looked like that was the game that was that was actually <laughs> unfolding and then yeah. it was really in the final quarter where Ireland woke up again but anyway sorry back to back to what yeah, you were saying yeah no well well it's interesting because obviously New Zealand being the most you know naval gazing rugby nation there is um in which um you know you're going to be struggling to find anyone who can tell you anything about rugby outside of super super rugby really that that's that's what we associate um, Joe Schmidt with. Joe Schmidt's also got uh, quite a decent, um, I guess, like cult hero reputation because he couldn't make it in New Zealand rugby. He yeah. he was it was a assistant at the Blues and 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 saw that he wasn't going any further, um, that the pathway pathway wasn't open for him, and that this jobs for the boys thing that I alluded to before uh, was going to stop him from getting getting anywhere. And so for him to go offshore and have massive success uh, and really stick it up New Zealand rugby has uh, as endeared him to quite a lot of people. But you're right, you know, for the rest of us who, uh, you know, actually do keep an eye on um, Northern Hemisphere rugby and, and the way it's played that, yeah, I, I guess the perception is that, you know, he plays quite a, quite a conservative style. And it has been interesting under Andy Farrell to see Ireland kind of, you know, open their minds a little bit and unearth some some really talented players. Um, a few of whom happen to be New Zealanders. So you, <laughs> you were wait, you were waiting to drop that one in. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I mean, I don't don't get me wrong. I, um, there's there's a lot of love uh, for the likes of James Lowe and Bundyaki and um, Jamison Gibson Park, and uh, you know, again, they they guys who couldn't crack it. They they're guys who were, I think I think Lowe might have had a shot you know if the sort of chips fell his way because he's oh winger. yeah no i remember and a lot of a lot I of wingers when i certainly remember when leinster signed james Lowe. like i remember there was there, there was quite a lot of people down in new zealand who weren't happy yeah. that you know he was being he was being let yeah. go and he was being lost to the system but certainly with with gibson park and bundyaki mm. like they weren't you know well, i mean Gib- they weren't gibson regarded park- as massive prospects when they arrived in ireland oh not at all i mean gibson park was a guy who was struggling to find a place on a bench in a super rugby team and Bundyaki, uh, yeah, I mean, he got a few starts with the Chiefs, but again, it wasn't like anyone was crying themselves to sleep when he signed to go over. But for those guys to then transform themselves into not just test players, but very good test players, and also then guys who beat the All Blacks, and in Lowe's case, you know, score a very crucial try. Uh, again, it's, it's there is a sort of sense of endearment towards them. It's like, oh, well, you know, maybe our system isn't what we think it's going to be. Maybe we should be thinking outside the box with guys like this. But, you know, uh, a- again, um, it's a lot of it is of that sort of feeling is due to the frustration we've had, um, not just with the All Blacks, but just with the governing body just in general um, lately. Because, you know, you know what it's like. You know, everyone loves to hate the, the boss. So, yeah. <laughs> what is the what would be the perception of Ireland at the moment under Andy Farrell? Like you said, it's obviously, it's been interesting to see like the way that they've changed their game, particularly with, you know, James Lowe being a huge part of it and the way they use him, bringing him in off the the left wing so much. What's the, what do people think of Ireland as a rugby team at the moment? Oh, very highly regarded. Very highly regarded. And, and it's because you guys 
beat us more than more times than we beat you. It's uh, just come down to that. I, I can't believe I'm saying this. You know, it's uh, it's, um, it's been obviously a very fruitful period for Aerotropia over the last the last decade. And I think in a New Zealand uh, fans perspective, you know, there's there's several teams that when the All Blacks play, you're like, okay, well, this could go either way. You know, there's Springboks, um, there's England, uh, there's France, as long as it's, you know, like a game that actually kind of means something. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you can add Ireland to that to that list. And I guess the Wallabies as well, because they're good for a win every couple of years. Uh, but yeah, you can add Ireland to that list. Like they're not seen as just a guaranteed kind of like, okay, well, we're going on a tour up here. We'll win that one, the winner. But the, the game against England's the one that's going to be really important. Yeah. Like now, you know, going to Dublin, like on that tour last year was seen as like, this is, this is a real challenge. Like we, we might not win, win this game. And uh, it felt that way back in 2018 as well. I was lucky enough to be at that one. Um, and I remember the, you know, the, the, the sense of nervousness around that game was really palpable. And it's the first time, I guess, we'd ever really felt that way about going into an Irish test because it certainly didn't feel that way in 2016. That, that, that was seen as just a, you know, regulation game. And I think probably the All Blacks had a bit too much to drink that week. And, you know, that's, uh, but, but no, this, this series in particular uh, is seen as a real benchmark um, for the All Blacks themselves. Uh, which is a real, I guess, um, it really shows how how highly regarded Ireland are right now by by New Zealand fans, and also why the series has been scheduled the way it is. Usually, the third test would be at Eden Park. Yeah, usually, I was gonna, the, I was going to ask you about yeah. that next, actually. Yeah, so like obviously, well, as we said, on, Ireland yeah. won three of the was it three of the last five meetings between the pair, but obviously, all but one of them. Was were in Ireland and that one was in neutral territory in Chicago. But Ireland obviously have never beaten New Zealand in New Zealand, and it is quite interesting that, as you say, Eden Park and Auckland is first up. It it feels like there's there's a bit of a statement being made there by by the All Blacks just putting that one out there that they absolutely want to put their best foot forward straight away. Yeah, absolutely. And not only is it is it first up, it's been sold out for a long time now, and that that says a lot. Um, because you know, New Zealand, like New Zealand's been in lockdown for a while. We've had a lot of restrictions on what we can do. Probably a lot more. It's lasted a lot longer than it has in the rest of the world. So, you know, this is probably the first. This will be the first um, rugby season since the pandemic started, where everything's kind of going according to schedule. But even then, Super Rugby was was disrupted. But this All Black Test series is like, no, this is this is a sign that New Zealand's kind of going back to normal. So this one's sold out, and it's not it's not a coincidence that the first game to the impact not at all um you know the all blacks haven't lost there since 1994 um it's every time they play there the old fortress story gets brought up the all blacks get asked about it they deny it they say it's just another game just another place to play it's not it's 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 where they feel the most at home um and so to get off the mark at Eden park is really really important um, for the All Blacks this year, and so that's why they're that's why they're playing them. Yeah, that's going to be interesting to see. I mean, if if Ireland were to come up and someone come up with a victory in that first test in, in Eden Park, there's a lot of pressure on. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on Ian Foster straight away. But on the flip side, it's something we were saying yesterday that if Ireland were to to lose their warm up game against the Maori All Blacks next Wednesday, 
and then take a bad defeat at Eden Park, all of a sudden you've got two long weeks of a tour left ahead of you down in what in the depths of winter in New Zealand. On on the All Black squad, there were I think it was a six uncapped players uh, named by Ian Foster. Of the, of that bunch of of uncapped players, how many or who do you think we're likely to see across the Test matches? Yeah, good good question actually because I I feel like it would probably depend on the way that the series is going. If Ireland can pull off a big win in the first test, um, it's going to be panic stations and they're going to have to rely on you know some senior players. You, you mentioned six uh, new caps in the in the in the team. None of those guys are actually a, too much of a surprise though. Um, they're just going off Super Rugby form. You know we've had. 18 weeks of Super Rugby. Yeah. Like, it's pretty obvious who's who's going to be in and who who wasn't going to be in out of that. Um, the only, I guess, what you could call contentious uh, pick out of those six was the, um, Peter Gustavo from from the Chiefs. And it's not because he's hasn't been playing well. It's just that Cullen Grace from the Crusaders came out and pulled out an absolutely massive couple of shifts in the semi-final and final was a really key player for the Crusaders there. So it's interesting that they named the All Black team a week before the final. I feel like if they named it the, the day after the final, might have been a little bit different there. Um, in saying that, given the makeup of the All Black loose forwards, how much time on the field uh, either of those guys uh, would have got is pretty negligible. Um, the main one, the main player out of the new guys I could see starting uh, and, and actually you know, playing a pretty big role and this is Lester Fyanganuku um, from the Crusaders because he can play wing uh, center. Uh, and he's just been in such good form. Like he, uh, to be honest, I, he should have got picked last year. Uh, and so I could I could definitely see him starting uh, the first test. Um, and then if things go according to plan and the All Blacks have won the first couple, we'd see that squad rotated um, yeah. at the end. Um, the other one would be Falau Pakatawa uh, at halfback. Um, he's looking like he's going to be the reserve halfback um, behind Aaron Smith now. Um, but again, when you're behind Aaron Smith, uh, you're, you're, you're going to get 20 minutes max. Um, he's still got the legs. He's probably actually playing just as well as he was five or six years ago, um, to be perfectly honest. So the main thing about Fakatava uh, was that they clearly see him as Smith's successor and they want him in their environment for as long as possible. So when Smith does presumably move on uh, after the next World Cup, uh, Fakitava has already established himself um, after two whole seasons uh, in the All Blacks there. So those are the two guys, the two new guys, um, who are going to probably play a, a reasonable role in this. But again, it, the team that you're going to see run out in the first test is not going to be too different from the one um, that Irish fans would have seen at Dublin. In a short answer, who's who's leading this eternal race between Bowden Barrett and Richie Mwanga at the moment? Ha. Uh, well, short answer is Bowden. Um, they've, they've sort of telegraphed that uh, already. But again, uh, if you're going off the last couple of games, it would probably be Richie. Um, yeah. So I, I think that uh, the biggest clue um, to where they're going on that was the players they've selected around Bowden. Um, and there's, he's got a lot of Blues teammates there, so they clearly see him as uh, the, the the main man that they're building a backline around. Um, it's not to say that Richie couldn't 
completely take over at, at any minute. He's that good. And just finally then, obviously, the, the first game up for Ireland is the, the game against the Murray All Blacks in, in Hamilton next Wednesday. You mentioned Colin Grace. Obviously, he didn't make the All Black squad. He's been brought into the Murray squad as well. And obviously, there's bigger names like TJ Paranara and Brad Weber in there as well that a lot of Irish fans probably would know. But for those who, who haven't really been watching Super Rugby week on week, who are the guys in that squad that, that, that maybe you could, you could talk about and to just keep an eye on? Uh, maybe that 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 the the standard Irish fans mightn't necessarily know too much about if they're not watching Super Rugby week on week. Yeah, well, I mean, the one thing I will say about um, the Maori All Blacks is that they 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 never really get enough time together uh, to to really kind of give me a, a massive amount of confidence that they're going to go out there and, 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 and really hand it to a team um, like, uh, like a touring team. Like they'll have less preparation um, than the Irish team will. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for, for Irish uh, fans, I think that you, you, you might feel a bit more confident um, about these couple of games than, uh, than you will. Um, you mentioned Colin Grace. Uh yeah, he he's carrying on some some good form in there. Um, they're going to be leaning quite heavily on TJ and Brad uh, in that environment. Um, it'd be very interesting to see uh, how they're going to how those guys' motivation levels are, uh, considering that um, TJ and Brad will be absolutely gutted to be to be missing this uh, missing the All Black um, team. Um, but other than that, I think there's some real promise uh, in the second row. You've got Manaki Selby Rickett and Isaiah Walker Leoeri, who are both guys who are kind of there or thereabouts, um, an all black selection at, at lock, um, who both had pretty good um, uh, super rugby seasons. Uh, and then in the loose forwards, um, some real promise there with um, Caleb Delaney and TK Howden. Uh, TK had a big season for the Hurricanes there, and he's already looking like a guy who. The, the Hurricanes are going to try and lock up for a few more years uh, out there. And then, of course, you've got one test all like Josh Ioane, uh, who's going to start at first five. So it'd be really interesting to see see how he goes. But like I said, uh, there's just... They, th- this team probably needs a couple more weeks together and a warm-up match of their own before they go into this game. I, I, would, I would honestly think, and especially the way Clayton McMillan coaches, um, it's actually going to be quite a conservative um, game plan. The last time Māori played... Uh, they relied heavily on um, uh, gaining penalties, kicking to the corner, and and on line-out drives. So, yeah, it, it's it, it's probably not going to be the most exciting of games. Um, maybe certainly the, maybe, not, the, maybe not, the second maybe the second time they meet later on in the tour might be the the more interesting one. You think? Uh, perhaps, but if they just score a couple line-out drive tries and kick the penalties, they're probably going to stick to that. Yeah. Um, game plan, which is a shame because the last time the Māori played uh, Ireland back in 2010, it's a fantastic game, absolutely fantastic game. Um, but yeah, it's it, they just need a bit more time together. Last question, it's a short one as well, but maybe a tricky one to answer. Of that, of that Maori squad, who's the most likely to be playing Test rugby for Ireland in five years' time? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Jeepers, uh, who do you who do you want? Um, I think that uh, any of the outside backs uh, would, would, would look all right in a green jersey. There's a young fellow called Josh Morby um, who had a good season for the Hurricanes. You could probably keep an eye on him. Um, and then um, the Sullivan brothers, Zahn and Balin, 
Um, yeah, if I were if I were an Irish rugby uh, rugby union official, I'd be having a good look at them and, and tapping into one of your um, provinces to perhaps make them an offer. Very good. Cheers for that, Jamie. And uh, we'll keep an eye on those lads over the next few weeks as well. Jamie Wall, thanks a million for joining us uh, live from New Zealand ahead of the test series between Ireland and the All Blacks coming up next week. We have some more content coming up in the next few minutes, though, because also today, Michael Glennon caught up with former Ireland flanker Stephen Ferris. Hi, Stephen. Uh, welcome to the RT Rugby Podcast special. Thanks for joining us. You're looking well in that new shirt. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, uh, made stronger, of course, is uh, the new tagline from uh, Canterbury. Um, just seen the jersey downstairs. Actually, it's it's cracking. Looks really good. Long gone the days of the old rubber shirts that we used to wear back in 2011. Um, they were like wetsuits. You know, I used to <laughs> used to come back into the change room about 10 kgs lighter because of the amount of sweat that would uh, that would ooze out of every pore and orifice that we had. So now the, the, the jersey's looking magnificent. Um, wearing a bit of the training gear here. Uh, it's just great to be down here and representing Canterbury. And um, yeah, you know, hopefully the uh, the relationship between Irish rugby and Canterbury can, can keep going for the next number of years. Very good. And before we move on to the Irish tour, can I just, do, we had during the week at Munster announced, or last week Munster announced Rowan Osborne and Jonathan Rain had to retire. And earlier in the year we had Dan Levy did have to retire. You're obviously someone who had to retire um, before time as well. Was your transition, was the pain of that or the hardest part of it, did that happen in the first couple of years after? Or was there maybe a, a period further down the line that it hit you at some stage that what you should be doing is playing rugby, but you're not? How easy was that transition and when was the, the peak and the the peak of it or the peak of the pain? Yeah, that's a really good question, Michael. I, I, I think... You know, it's obviously disappointing to hear that guys are having to, to hang the boots up. Um, you know, Dan Levy is somebody who I had huge admiration for and respect for as a, as a player. Uh, and, you know, what an asset he could have been to Irish rugby over the next uh, number of years if he had been able to keep himself fit. Uh, it's always difficult. And like me here sitting chatting to you today, like, you know, I played with Johnny Sexton at underage level. Like, um, you know, does that mean that I could still be playing professional rugby? Does that mean that I... Me could be out in New Zealand representing Ireland um, in a summer tour. Like, if you look at it like that, you would drive yourself up the walls. Like, you know, you would go, you would go mental. So, um, mm. I, I think for me, it was obviously slightly different, Michael, because I injured myself badly, obviously in in 2012. But I had like a six, seven, eight months until I sort of made a bit of a comeback, and then, you know, I was out for another while, and then I actually. Re- retired at the end of 2014 so like I had a long long time to actually get my head around it where if you went out you know broke your leg in 10 places and you were told the next day you can never play rugby again it would be completely different circumstances so yeah it's never easy especially at a younger age like you know 2009 to 2012 was probably when I was playing my best rugby um you know up for European player of the year in 2012 and uh, off the back of a Lions tour and you know playing really solid rugby and uh, getting fitter and getting stronger and, and feeling really good and for for an injury injury like that to stop you in your tracks is is, is pretty tough but uh, I'm the type of person Michael I don't tend to dwell on things too long um, and uh, yeah just kind of move on and is that being is that because I'm, I'm mentally tough or anything I don't think so I just think it. Um, it's been bred into me as a as a young man growing up with with good parenting and um, you know good schooling that uh, you know 
know, just uh, just keep kicking on and keep moving forward. And if there's another opportunity presents itself that you you go after it, and if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. You move on to the next one, and that's the mindset that I've had since since finishing professional rugby. And are you completely over that injury? Because I remember when people retired to say they're worried about their kind of the, the later years about hobbling around or whatever. Do you do you feel a twinge in the ankle or anywhere in the body now? I know you get out for your 18 holes, but is that an easy walk or is there sometimes you can just feel it? Can you feel it at some stage if you're putting enough pressure on it? Oh, geez, I was sitting in the car driving down here today and just moving my right ankle or right foot from brake to accelerator. Like I was getting a driving pain into my right uh, more on my uh, lateral ligaments of my right ankle. So when I hurt my ankle, obviously I've done significant damage, um, tore my deltoid ligament on the medial side, uh, tore my lateral ligaments and tore my reconaculum, which is at the back of the ankle, uh, which holds a couple of crucial ligaments in there. So um, our tendons, tendons, should I say. So yeah, it gives me jip now and again, but like it hasn't annoyed me for the last couple of months. And then all of a sudden, it's it's at you, but like Michael, the last couple of months I became a father eleven months ago, and having a wee one, bending down, changing nappies, like stuff that people, know, just do, people just do every single day anyway. Like yeah. my back, I've is went and got an MRI scan on my back there a couple of months ago. Two bulging discs in L4, L5. Um, probably have to get them injected again, like I did when I played rugby. My knee gives me chip now and again of the dodgy thumbs, like, but it's all part and parcel of the game. <laughs> Putting your body on the line for Ireland every single week, eh, or every single year. Um, yeah. I would have changed any of it. Like, okay, I ask myself that question every every year, and and, it, and it's starting to change because the older I'm getting, the more niggles I'm having. Um, like I'm 37 next month, like so. Uh, you know, I I, I wrote. Would it change anything when I played? Probably not. I, of course I wouldn't. But um, would have went full tilt in every single training session and went full bore against Zebra on a Friday night in Belfast? Probably not. <laughs> I probably would have uh, give it the old, this, the old uh, Johnny Sexton. It was 50 minutes to go like when the match was won. But um, yeah, that's the way it goes, eh? Just on a tour to New Zealand, Stephen, and we saw in the England selection for their tour to have Vonnie Pola comes back and Danny Kerr has has played him played his way into contention. Does the Irish contracting system mitigate against players in form? As in maybe they are who have development paths laid out for players. I've seen a couple of times this year a scrum half playing against another scrum half and outplaying him. But yeah. not getting into the Six Nations squad. I've seen, recently I've seen another scrum half playing two rival internationals and not getting into the squad. Is it the contract system that goes against a, a more freedom in selection? Is there more expectation that a guy who is on a certain path should be picked ahead of a guy? Who, you, you know about guys in form up in Ulster, maybe don't get a fair shake. Michael, that's that's a really interesting question and really a couple of interesting points that you make because you know not a lot of people understand the contract system within Ireland um, and the amount of centrally contracted players uh, as well you know there's only a only a, a small handful from Ulster and Munster and then there's you know obviously a, a bigger group of guys from Leinster who are on national centralized contracts um, I'm not sure 
is Bondiaki on one? Is I'd say probably is. Is uh, Gary Ringrose, Robbie Henshaw uh, on contracts? I'm not 100% sure, but I know for a fact that Stuart McCluskey isn't. So does that then mean that because he's not on a centrally contract uh, contract that he is behind the other couple of lads just because he's not on a contract, but yet he's playing better rugby? Um, so it's it's some really interesting points there. I would love to get David Nusifora, uh on the podcast there uh, to, to talk about it because I don't have a, the right answer for you, but I just know that there are a lot of players out there who are playing good rugby week to week that don't seem to be getting in, whether that's John Cooney, whether that's Stuart McCluskey, whether that's Jack O'Donoghue. Um, it's... It, it just sometimes people are coming out with the phrase now nah, the, the face doesn't fit. Um, I don't think that can ever be, you know, said. Uh, as, and it certainly won't be said by anybody out of the, R, the RFU or the coaching staff of, of the Irish team. Um, but yeah, it's something that I don't have a, an answer for. But I think it's probably something, in my opinion, that that hampers a few of the guys who aren't on central league contracts or central contracts to uh, try to leapfrog the boys who are. Have you any concerns, not individually, but if I told you the ages of a few lads for the World Cup in next year, Keith Aarons would be 36, Conor Murray 34, Sexton 38, Keane Healy 36, Peter Romani turning 34, Joe Ireland play South Africa. Not individually, but would you have concerns about an age profile of that? Um, yeah, possibly. Like, um... Uh, as as any sport is now, it's a young man's or women's game. Um, you know, uh, the collisions are getting bigger and stronger. Um, the pace of the game, the intensity of the game is getting bigger. And you know, the older you get, you know, everybody talks about, oh, he's lost that half a yard of pace, or he's, you know, he he's not putting in the bigger big hits like he used to, etc. Um, I, I think that of course there's always going to be a concern. There's going to be an even bigger concern if. You get to, you know, a couple of months out from the Rugby World Cup, and two or three of those players that you mentioned are then out with an injury, or they start coming down, and the next thing you're going into a Rugby World Cup with a, like a negative attitude, and all the media are doing is asking, is Johnny Sexton fit, or is Peter O'Mahony fit, or is Keith Earls fit? Okay. You know, and um, it's uh, it can be uh, it can be very difficult for 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 players to keep. Um, answering the same questions about age profile. Yeah, and I know before you kind of mentioned that you could almost pick the, the Irish team for the for the world. And I was just thinking maybe 15 months out from a World Cup, it, that's not really healthy. In yeah. that, what does it say to other guys who are outside that frame? That because before Ireland had troubles in the past in 2007, that there was almost a split in the camp between guys who were knew they were going to start, but it'd be quite unhealthy for anyone to be able to pick this Ireland team. There should be room for bolters. There should be room for form, selector, for form selections. Um, do you see, do you, do you back that up that you think you can name the team and that's it? Um, like there's an argument, there's an argument for it being healthy and unhealthy. Uh, healthy being because, you know, the players are playing more consistently together um their, their their understanding of how you know each other operate uh, on on the biggest stage um they're able to to to, to move around that um 
it's if two or three lads get injured and then you're calling on people who don't have as much international experience to play in a quarter final or please go out a semi final of a rugby world cup um that's when you you know you know problems might start to arise so yeah i, I think there's a fine balance michael I, I i really firmly believe that this tour to new zealand there should be guys given opportunity not just to come off the bench for 10 minutes in a test match but to start test matches let's see Joey Carberry start two of the three test matches. Let's see Harry Burns start one of the test matches. Let's see what they can do on the biggest stage with the best players around them, not in an autumn internationals game against Japan, who, you know, they're beating 70 points and they're playing with, you know, 14 other lads in their team who are in the same position as them fighting for an opportunity. Let's start these guys. Let's start James Hume alongside Johnny Sexton and Bundy Aki in the centre with James Lowe on the wing and, Hugo Keane, the fullback. Let's you know, let's see, let's see if he can fit in there, um, because uh, you know, for me, that's what this summer tour should be about: is about finding out the next three or four lads that are going to play for Ireland over the next decade. How how do you think Ireland will get the three test matches? Um, yeah, I think Ireland going on tour and getting a one one result out of the three test matches would be a huge success. Um, I think you know we punch above our weight in rugby here. Um, you know, there's a lot of expectation due to what we've achieved against the All Blacks in, in recent years. But you got to understand how difficult it is to go there and get a result. Um, and we all know that the last tour in 2012 didn't go to plan. So I don't think there's going to be any rollovers. I don't think there's going to be any 60-point uh, results like there was back then. But, uh, you know, Ireland have really got to be on their game. Uh, and if they can snatch one test victory, then I think the boys will come home uh, extremely happy. Brilliant. Stephen, thanks very much for joining us on the RT Rugby Podcast. And thanks, enjoy Michael. the All the best. Cheers. All the best. The RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com.